Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thanks, Scott. I'm John Ford, and here is what's ahead. We're going to speak with a five-star fund manager who's up 25% year-to-date, far outperforming the markets, and the gains haven't come from the high flyers, the reopening trade, or big tech. He's going to tell us what he's buying. Plus, electric earnings, ChargePoint, giving strong guidance on its call today as it inks an EV deal with GM. We're going to talk to the CEO about that deal, what could be next, and the role the infrastructure bill might play in the sector. And multiple stock sales, millions of shares issued, and a lot of dilution. We're going to look at AMC's wild week, but we begin with today's markets. Seema Modi with the numbers. John, all those concerns are on Fed, inflation, jobs, major averages are on track to end the week in positive territory. We are currently trading at the best levels of the day, led by the Nasdaq up 1.4%. And just from a global markets perspective, worth noting the European stock averages have been hitting new highs every day once again trading higher by four-tenths of 1%. Here in the U.S., consumer discretionary is topping the S&P. Names like Twitter following news of its subscription service. Take-Two Interactive planning to launch 93 games over the next five years, getting the support from analysts at Jefferies with an upgrade. And Netflix higher by 1.6%. Actively traded names, once again, it is AMC. 185 million shares have now exchanged exchanged hands. In fact, average trading volume on AMC has nearly quadrupled this year's average. Biogen is also moving on heavy volume, up about 5% ahead of an FDA decision on its Alzheimer's drug. And Bitcoin also moving down just about 4.7%. So completely isolated data points, John, which do not make up a trend, but certainly are worth watching. All right, Seema, thank you. And now stock picking is back with active funds crushing passive ones. According to Bank of America Securities, active funds posted their best month ever in May with nearly 70 percent of large cap funds beating equity benchmarks. One manager seeing spectacular gains is Eli Salzman, a portfolio manager of the Newberger Berman Large Cap Value Fund, rated five stars by Morningstar. It is up 27 percent year to date, outperforming the S&P 500 by 15 points. Uh, Eli, welcome. Now, I don't know. This isn't supposed to be working. I'm told value's dead. You're not in GM's uh, GameStop or or AMC. Uh, You're not chasing Snowflake. Uh, What are you buying? How can it be working? Yeah, sure. Um, You know, value's been out of favor, as we all know, for the last 13 years. But it's time for value. It's time for value over growth. Uh, It reminds me a lot of what we saw 20 years ago where growth was in favor for an extended period of time in the 90s, and then value took over in OO and ran for seven years and ran hard. We're entering that same period now, at least for the next three to five years. So what are the underlying beliefs that you have about what the economy is doing or what's necessary that are driving these picks? Sure, sure. The first thing to understand as to why value is going to outperform is, remember, value works in an accelerating economic environment, and growth works in a decelerating environment. Again, that's counterintuitive. But you pay a premium for growth and growth isn't there. We are entering an accelerating environment. We're looking at an environment that's going to have higher growth, higher inflation, and also higher interest rates. 
And in a higher interest rate environment, you want to be in low duration, not, you know, not high duration, not long duration. Long duration is growth. Low duration is value. And that's where you want to be. Now, that's a similar argument that I hear to people who are buying Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies about the inflation side of this. But you are buying something that is very different from that, including J.P. Morgan. Tell me why. Yeah, we really like the financials a lot here. Remember, financials benefit in three ways. Let's start by talking about the interest rates. Most banks are asset sensitive, including J.P. Morgan. Clearly, what asset sensitive means is loans repriced before deposits. Clearly, in, in that environment, you get net interest margin spreads expanding, and clearly that's very good for financials. The other thing also is loan portfolios and the quality of those loan portfolios are completely misunderstood. Loans are clearly about to pick up as the economy picks up and the competition has moved out. So it's all very good for financials. Now, I said you don't have big tech, but that's not entirely true because Cisco is pretty big, though it was called big tech more 15 years ago. What does it represent, that type of company, uh, among your picks? Do you have others of its ilk? And, and why will you hold on to it, if you will, for the rest of the year? Sure, sure. You know, the, the answer is we like Cisco very much, but it's important to understand Technology as a whole is a very big weight in our benchmark. And while you see a couple of technology names, we are very underweight relative to the benchmark. So please don't misunderstand. We are not positive on technology. You're definitely very positive on Cisco. But technology as a whole, we're quite negative on. We think, again, like we talked about, the long duration stocks, the technology stocks are the ones that are going to get hit here. And so as we head toward the end of the year, are there specific either catalysts or warning signs that you are looking out for, whether they be legislative, whether they be you know, economic signals that we expect to get that are going to affect uh, how much you lean into or away from certain elements of your thesis? Yeah, I mean, l- l- listen, you know, obviously we're a bottom-up manager and we go company by company, sector by sector. That being said, from a top-down perspective, you know, we are going to focus very, you know, very clearly on economic growth, what's going on in the environment, is pricing, you know, is pricing materializing, um, is capacity coming on. Those are the things that we're going to focus on. With the amount of monetary and fiscal stimulus you have pumped in over the last year, the economic growth is sort of baked in for the next six to 12 months. And when you look at the labor report today and some of the signals on inflation that we've been getting, I know you mentioned inflation being a concern, but how transitory do you think it is? Uh, do, do you see anything that maybe others aren't paying as much attention to that you think we should be paying more attention to? You know, I think some of the fl- some of the inflation is clearly transitory, but much of it is not. You know, one of the most you know important things to focus on is we've never in, in my 40 years of being in the business, we've never seen this kind of capacity destruction. Um, COVID destroyed a lot of capacity. That capacity takeout, some of it is permanent. So we believe that while some inflation is transitory, some is not. Some will be with us for quite a while. All right. Old school stock picking and paying attention to those signals. Eli Saltzman with the Newberger Berman Large Cap Value Fund. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Speaking of inflation, it continues to be the big word when it comes to the Fed as investors try to figure out how hot they'll let the economy run. Today, we got more evidence of those rising costs. Wages jumped more than expected. New credit card data shows consumers are paying more for goods. So is it another sign that the Fed could go from baby steps to bigger leaps when it comes to tapering? Joining me now is Michelle Meyer, head of U.S. economics at Bank of America Global Research. Michelle, what does this data show and how should people be reacting to it? Sure. So I think it's uh, very clear that there is this big 
kind of mismatch between demand and supply. Demand is extraordinarily strong. Consumers are outspending at a rapid clip for all kinds of products, whether it's durable goods or services spending. Um, and meanwhile, businesses are investing and in trying to keep up with that demand and increase their capacity. But there's obviously some real challenges there, and that's creating these price pressures, which were evident in today's jobs report, and it's evident in the inflation numbers as well. So we're talking about price pressure, but there's also wage increases. I've been seeing all these stories about hey, how much the summer jobs are paying. It's a good time to be a teenager looking for work. Um, the, some of the inflation might be transitory. Are the wage hikes also transitory, do you think? And is that going to affect how much people are willing to pay for things as the year progresses? Well, look, yeah, I mean, there's similar dynamics in the labor market as are in the broader economy, which is that there's an incredible amount of demand for labor. We see that with the job openings numbers. Um, and there's some friction in terms of getting people back in the labor market into the jobs that would best suit them. Um, so I think the, the increase in wages, particularly what you're seeing on the lower skilled part of the the labor force seems to be partly a function of this, and it's probably going to um, slow down. I don't anticipate we're going to see wage growth of this magnitude um, much longer. That said, I do think we need to be careful with what we how we characterize transitory. You know, transitory could last for a few months here, if not quarters, um, given the incredible um, imbalance in the economy right now. And the longer that you get these price increases, particularly the larger those price increases are, um, the more it starts to set into expectations and can threaten to be more persistent. So does this at all shift the math on when we get a taper from the Fed? You know, I don't think it's going to really change the timeline too significantly, to be honest. I think that the Fed is setting up very nicely and carefully for a change in the balance sheet for tapering, which in the next few months, I think is still very much a function of the success in the labor market um, rather than this, you know, kind of inflation narrative. I think the inflation trajectory will really influence the timing of rate hikes and the speed of those rate hikes. But I think for tapering, it's about making sure that there's sufficient growth, broad-based enough growth, where you can start to pull back on those asset purchases. Um, and to me, they're starting the baby steps in, in, in setting the stage for it. Um, and I think that throughout the summer, we're going to hear a little bit more around the taper, a bit more details, nothing concrete. And then in the fall, particularly that September FOMC meeting, I think if all goes as planned, they'll be able to send a more explicit signal at that point. Okay, now let's go a little bit more micro again, get back into that credit card data. A year ago, consumers were binging on toilet paper, right? But now entertainment services, is this like the flip side of I've been cooped up, you know, all year with my with my closet full of toilet paper? Now I want to get out and have some fun. Um, Is that what the data is showing? Yeah, I mean, to some extent, yes, it is. You, you, you know, you, you certainly are seeing consumers want to go back out and live their life. And as you noted, our core data shows a pretty impressive increase in entertainment services spending from the beginning of the year. And there's still a lot more to go in terms of catching up in that category. You're seeing restaurant spending in the order of almost 20 percent on a two year growth rate, um, travel picking up in a meaningful way. And what's interesting and I think very important, though, is that you're still seeing consumers spend on some of these durable goods they've been buying. They're still going out buying home, home improvement stores, furniture, electronics 
clothing. So, you know, there's been so much talk about all the excess savings that's happened. And now I think we're seeing, in a sense, excess spending um, across categories. And there's more room to go in that front in, in my read of it. So what's the what are the anomalies that you're seeing here? Are you seeing anything in this data that's like, well, consumers usually don't spend so much on that or there's no way this is going to last or, hey, this is brand new. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, the, clearly the magnitude of increases is, 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 is you know, unusual. Um, <laughs> these are dramatic increases in a number of categories, you know, particularly things like entertainment, leisure, um, because we're, we're bouncing off of such low levels because it was depressed as a result of the pandemic. So, you know, at some point it starts to become challenging to see growth rates continue at that magnitude. You start to reach a level where spending is, is, is kind of normalized or above and beyond normalized and and you start to see some moderation thereafter. But, you know, I think it's a sign that consumers are going back out, they're reengaging. And I think that there's a lot more of that throughout the summer as virus numbers continue, hopefully, to go down and people have more opportunities to reengage. But yes, we are clearly in unusual times and we're still seeing this this payback from the period of lockdown and the pandemic. Well, Michelle, I hope you have a good weekend that you spend some money on entertainment services. (laughs) Michelle Meyer with Bank of America Global Research. All right, coming up, EV charging station network charge point reporting disappointing results, but standing by its full year guidance as its customer base continues to grow. We'll speak with the CEO about that. It's GM deal and the president's uh, infrastructure push. Plus, Bank of America's throwing in the towel on a couple of meme stocks saying they're no longer trading on fundamental. Will other Wall Street banks follow suit? The exchange back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Shares of EV charging leader ChargePoint higher after posting 24% revenue growth and record new customers last quarter, plus bullish guidance for Q2. Still down about 10% since its public debut through a SPAC in March. Can this charging pioneer get a boost from the EV surge and President Biden's clean energy push? Let's ask the CEO, ChargePoint President and CEO, Pasquale Romano. Pasquale, good to have you. Uh, What are these dynamics that could impact uh, both demand uh, for your service and your progress throughout the rest of the year? For us, it's all about vehicles being sold in the the consumer market and the fleet market. Our business is completely driven by vehicles driving demand for charging. Uh, and, And you're seeing that. You're seeing a tremendous number of announcements. You're also seeing... Uh, great consumer uh, reception to uh, to the new makes and models that are really going to drive demand for our products. Now, to what degree do incentives from governments then influence the, the pace and rate right, of purchases of EVs? Uh, to, to what extent do 
I, I guess the pricing actions by some of these companies influence that, too. We've seen Tesla in the last few days say, hey, we're going to have to raise prices a bit to deal with some of these supply chain issues that we've seen globally. Yeah, I mean, I think you, it's normal price dynamics in the in not only in the auto industry, but you're seeing that, I think, across the board in all industries. Um, prices move around with, um, you know, with supply chain issues, availability, uh, demand, et cetera. But um, in general, EVs, you're seeing the most heartening thing is you're seeing more makes and models being introduced daily and their price points, the, the available models at lower price points that are more accessible to consumers has gone way up. Uh, and, and that, I think, is the bigger driver to consumer adoption of electric vehicles. Um, to, to what extent are you watching what's happening globally in EV adoption? And, you know, how much do those other markets affect how you invest and how you strategize about your growth? Well, we're investing heavily in Europe, uh, in addition to North America. And then we're also investing heavily in the emerging fleet segment, uh, which is a global business for us as well. Uh, so we not only watch it, we think it's critical. And here's why. Um, the auto industry is one where it cannot bring uh, platforms locally to a market that are too distinct because the R&D support for that uh, is challenging. And obviously, you get economies of scale when you can sell into more than one market. We have the same exact dynamic in our industry and virtually every other. You need global scale to be competitive, to drive uh, the R&D uh, that, you, that you need to drive to support it. The, uh, and more importantly, um, we need to be well integrated with auto OEMs in dash experiences and the ecosystem around that. And they're going to introduce those platforms globally. So the, the, the global nature of this cannot be uh, can cannot be more critical. Are we going to get on that commercial industrial front? Are we going to get more EV truck stops? I mean, th- those seem like things that, you know, that could be a backbone for this kind of business. How does that develop? Is there anything that you can do uh, either influencing policy or coalition-wise to bring that more to fruition more quickly? Yeah, so we're working with the National Association of Truck Stop Operators for, uh, uh, because they serve uh, long-haul uh, and medium-haul uh, trucking as well as passenger cars that want to use the facilities at, at uh, many of uh, the member uh, uh, truck and, and rest areas that are uh, a part of that organization. So the answer is a, def- a definitive yes there. Our policy team uh, is, is, is quite uh, well uh, distributed through the country, uh, through not only our country, we also have a presence in Canada and the EU, because de- helping to define good policy in how we can streamline the acceptance of vehicles in the trucking segment that you uh, talked about or the broader fleet segment and the consumer segment is all critical. How you structure incentives, how you structure um, um, uh, all, not only incentives for vehicles, but incentives for infrastructure to get good infrastructure and no stranded assets. That's very important. Yeah, when I'm seeing more EV truck stops on Highway 70 in the Midwest, I know something's going on for sure. Pascal Romano, thank you. Coming thank up, you very much. One of the largest digital sales companies is closing a $200 million funding round, valuing it at more than $4 billion. We're going to speak with the CEO about how their investment in AI is starting to pay dividends. That's next. Plus, just last hour, Facebook announced a penalty system that it will apply to politicians who violate Facebook's terms of service under certain conditions. It's also... uh, 
iterated that it has suspended former President Trump for at least two years. That's back effective January 7th of this year. So there's now a time frame on that suspension. We will discuss when we come right back. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is your CNBC News update at this hour. In Hong Kong, police stopping pro-democracy celebrations of the anniversary of the Tiananmen crackdown. In past years, tens of thousands gathered to light candles and remember the victims. Authorities cited the pandemic for banning events. For the second year in a row, the Singapore Grand Prix is being canceled because of the coronavirus. Singapore still requires lengthy quarantines for most visitors from abroad, Formula One organizers say that they continue to plan a 23-race season, which could bring a second race to the U.S. this year. And back here in the U.S., in California, severe drought, drying out many reservoirs. One researcher says that they're averaging 50 percent below normal levels. State officials predict that they'll hit record lows this summer. And tonight on the news, how drought is forcing changes in western states, what conservation measures are being considered, and who will have to get by with less water. Coming up tonight at 7 p.m. In the meantime, we'll send it back to you, John. All right, Rahel, thank you. Now, last year made it more important than ever to have a digitally empowered sales team when face-to-face meetings became impossible. Enter Outreach, an AI-driven platform designed to maximize sales. Outreach saw its revenue double in the last year, adding customers like Microsoft, Zoom, and Adobe. And this week, it closed a $200 million funding round as the valuation more than tripled uh, to nearly $4.5 billion. So what's next? As Outreach continues to grow post-pandemic, let's bring in co-founder and CEO of Outreach, Manny Medina. Manny, good to see you. Uh, And and I want to put this in the context of what we see happening in the broader economy. I mean, consumers are spending again. They're they're spending a lot, apparently. People coming back to the office. There's money for companies to make if they invest correctly, I guess. How, How does that fit into your hiring plans, growth plans, expansion plans for Outreach? John, good to see you again. Uh, Outreach is doubling its headcount again. We almost doubled from the beginning of the pandemic all the way to now, and we expect to hit another double in terms of hiring. So we expect another 600 to 700 people to come on board. And the most importantly, what we're seeing is our customers are growing as well. So we sell seats ahead of sales demand, and we're seeing sales seats being bought very quickly. And what we're expecting our customers is to be driving double-digit growth across the board, which is a great sign for the economy. Now, what's the mindset of these companies that are looking to drive sales, right? Because your pitch is sales efficiency. We're going to get you the right leads and help you close them. I mean, what's going to determine who wins most as the spending continues to pick up, at least people hope, coming out of this pandemic? That's a great question, John. So what we're seeing is the rise of what we call the revenue innovator. And the revenue innovator is a different job description that has changed since the pandemic because it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a data-driven digital first, you know, predictable, uh, long building trusting relationships kind of seller. And what we're seeing is that this influx and this growth 
of the type of seller that knows how to drive a digital conversation that is complemented with a hybrid approach of visiting your customer once, to, once we come back, but it's a very predictable, very data-driven kind of, kind of job description. So what we're seeing is our, the growth happening in, across, across our customer base is a growth of that kind of seller, a seller and a customer-facing rep that is going to be very data-driven and very innovator-led. Um, you know, if we were to think about the, the Salesforce number that just came out, those are incredible signs of growth for the cloud platform. And that's an incredible sign of growth for us as well, because what we're seeing is that the system of action is taking place on top of the system of record that Salesforce is providing. Yeah, uh, on the Salesforce platform where you operate, I want to note. Now, we keep talking about how this move toward digitization has gone beyond the usual suspects, you know, tech companies, uh, you know, companies that are living on the edge. The pandemic has pushed more companies into thinking about their digital processes and being efficient. Are you seeing a change in the makeup of your customer base, the types of industries represented and the kinds of problems that they're looking to solve? Oh, unequivocally so. What we're seeing is all the companies that used to be in the mainstream economy are coming accelerating into, into the second wave of digital transformation. So the first wave of digital transformation is to move all the data into the cloud, and that is happening, but it's not what companies are talking about. Companies are talking about is how do you make me smarter? How do you make my teams more efficient? How do you make my teams digital first? How do I live and thrive in this new hybrid environment post-COVID in which you know, the buyers are not ready to see sellers until post-transaction, until you're expanding, not selling? So all this you know, the, the, the before laggards are coming in and becoming, you know, early, early innovators, early adopters of new technologies such as, such as uh, outreach that but, is, you know, AI driven and digital first. But Manny, do these companies have the employees they need in order to get digitally smarter? Because if the companies weren't leaning as much into digital as they were before, it suggests to me that maybe they don't have the, the knowledge worker base that it takes to use the software. So is there more demand for that worker? Are the companies able to find it? Is that a bottleneck perhaps for the industry? That, that is precisely right. It's the, the new job description are the, 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 the revenue innovators, the digital first, the digital natives that are coming online. And those are new job descriptions. So they, don't, they may not have them, but they're coming online. They're getting, they're getting these jobs. These revenue innovators are the new revenue leaders, and they're hiring people who are of the same ilk that are looking to, to drive this, this innovation within their companies. And that's why you're seeing the transformation. Transformations are always people first. And this is this new wave of people that are coming into in, uh, traditional um, uh, companies that are driving this digital transformation because they're, they're, you know, they're forward thinkers and they're, and, they're, and, and they're data driven as well. A deeper look at what some of those numbers in the jobs report might mean and how innovation factors in. Manny Medina, uh, CEO, co-founder of Outreach. Thank you. Thank you, John. Bank of America is pulling its coverage of two meme stocks, warning investors to no longer rely on their past analysis on one of them in particular. Those names are coming up. And Bitcoin falling today, following a tweet from who else? Elon Musk. We'll head to the biggest Bitcoin event in history to find out what the crowd of more than 50,000 people are saying about the volatility. The exchange will be right back. Welcome back to The Exchange. Major indices right now are higher, with the Nasdaq leading the way, up more than 1%. Here are some of the movers this hour. Chip stocks outperforming today. Those gains putting semiconductor ETF SMH on pace for its third straight weekly gain, the longest streak since April. 
DocuSign on track for its best day since September on the heels of strong results, though it's still off more than 20% from recent highs. And shares of Square jumping after CEO Jack Dorsey tweeted that the company is considering making a hardware wallet for Bitcoin. And speaking of Dorsey and Bitcoin, Jack Dorsey speaking right now at the world's largest Bitcoin conference in Miami. More than 50,000 people gathering to discuss the future of crypto. CNBC.com tech reporter Mackenzie Sigalos is there and joins us now. Mackenzie, uh, Elon Musk let a little air out of the Bitcoin balloon that was already deflated from about a month ago. Is he popular there or no? Elon Musk is a divisive figure, even though he is not physically present here. So already today, Michael Saylor of MicroStrategy, a company that obviously was among the first movers to add Bitcoin to their balance sheet last year before the rally began, uh, appeared to take aim at some of Elon Musk's comments, saying that uh, Bitcoin, by a long shot, was one of the most energy efficient assets in the history of the planet. Uh, Jack Dorsey, as you mentioned, also speaking uh, at the event today, and he said that he thinks that you know Bitcoin is good for renewables, and in fact, is good for the environment. He also appeared to uh, kind of take aim at Elon when he said that uh, he thought that there was a consensus among notable figures in this space on that topic. So definitely coming up, also in conversations that I'm having, like I ask people, do they think that this setback from Elon Musk's comments has lasting power and they think it's just, it's a blip. Ah. And so how much talk then shifts to Jack Dorsey, who's been very much uh, a proponent of Bitcoin and decentralized finance, has power communication through Twitter and uh, is certainly big in fintech through Square. I mean, this uh, hardware wallet possibly getting a lot of buzz, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, a lot of positive comments from him saying that if he wasn't involved in Twitter and Square, he'd be working in Bitcoin. He'd be a full-time employee somewhere in the space. But this isn't new, right? Like, he's always been a big-time fan. So, like, even though he's very bullish on his Bitcoin comments, it's just a continuation of things that he said for years. Yeah, that hardware wallet would be interesting. Um, You know, security of Bitcoin, one of those things a lot of people are concerned about. You keep hearing about people with millions of dollars stranded when they've forgotten their passwords. Uh, you, hope, you hope maybe Jack Dorsey can get that figured out. Mackenzie, thank you. Thank you. And coming up, TikTok's new data collection. Facebook will no longer protect politicians. And Elon Musk is breaking the habit. All that and more in today's Rapid Fire. But first, it is Friday, and that means it's time to look ahead to what's in store for your money next week. Here's your Friday Fast Forward. inflation, and IPOs. That's all ahead next week. Investors and users alike are anxiously awaiting Apple's Worldwide Developers Conference on Monday. Were shares lowered by about 6% this year? Drink Token Company deliver. Two big IPOs are coming down the pipe. Payment startup Marketa is eyeing a $12 billion valuation and debuts on Wednesday. While workflow platform Monday.com hits the NASDAQ on Thursday. We'll get quarterly results from Stitch Fix, Chewy, and GameStop. That meme stock up 139% over the past three months. And the Consumer Price Index print for May will give us a read on inflation. Plus, hotel CEOs will take the virtual stage at the Goldman Sachs Travel and Leisure Conference as summer travel heats up. Colonial Pipeline CEO Joseph Blount testifies about its high-profile ransomware attack in front of the House Committee on Homeland Security. 
and President Biden will attend the 47th G7 Summit, which kicks off on Friday in the U.K. That's your Friday Fast Forward. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar. Time for Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines, Deirdre Bosa, Neelai Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge and a CNBC contributor, and Tim Seymour, CIO of Seymour Asset Management and a CNBC fast money trader. First topic, TikTok giving itself permission to collect extensive data like your face and voice prints. The new policy explains that TikTok may collect information about images and audio and users' content, something that other social networks practice. The more eyebrow-raising part deals with biometric data, staying we may collect biometric identifiers and biometric information as defined under U.S. law, such as face prints and voice prints from your user content. Where required, it says TikTok will ask for permission. Neelai, I'm old enough to remember last year when, you know, the U.S. government was going to shut down access to TikTok and require all the, And now, apparently, TikTok can just collect all kinds of biometric data. What is going on? Well, either they're already doing it and they need to cover their butts or they want to do it and they need to cover their butts. I think fundamentally the issue here is that terms of service agreements should probably be illegal or regulated. What other contracts would any business person sign that you never get to negotiate and that can change on a whim to favor the other side whenever the other side wants it? It is ridiculous. It's going a little too far. I think this is evidence of it. Now, D, while they're covering their butts, I'm wondering, can you get biometric information from a butt? Like, can you tell that it's TikTok's butt that it is covering in this situation? But, I mean, th- this wouldn't be... A lot of be... butts on TikTok, i got to say. <laughs> there are a lot of butts on TikTok, and they're usually dancing, uh, I think. But, uh, Deirdre, this wouldn't be as concerning, I guess, if we didn't know that China is really big into biometric data collection. So, I mean, where's this stuff going? Yeah, we're not really sure what they do with it. But, you know, my question is, does it really matter? I mean, my favorite part of this story is that the privacy policy wasn't actually of that much concern to its users, but rather that pop up. There's a big outroar on how this is actually rolled out. And users, a lot of them don't really care about the privacy policy. They just want to get that button out of the way. And to Neelay's point, though, there's only two options, OK or privacy policy. And As we well know, Apple is doing this a different way, opt-in or opt-out, clearly decisions. But this, your only option is to go read the privacy policy or stop using the app. So I think that will change. But it is pretty funny, in my opinion, that um, the rollout is what caused the most attention within the TikTok community with some TikToks going viral, making fun of it all. Yeah, I mean, people just want to get that out of the way because they want to see the dancing butts, Tim. That's that's what people are going to TikTok for, the, the butts that are getting covered but with the policy. I, I don't know. I guess, right? I mean, are there implications yeah. here for where social media platforms are headed in information collection? Well, again, because I'm not looking to post videos of me strutting around like Mick Jagger or skateboarding into a tree, um, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't worry about this, but I think object, object recognition with social media is not new. Um, I think it's this is a little bizarre considering the timing of, as we've said, and set the table on TikTok's issues in terms of trust in this country and where they just settled a $92 million class action suit in terms of where they may have violated uh, this dynamic in Illinois. So um, I, I, I think most users really could care less. Um, and I think the, the privacy policies are the, you know, that which they expect no one to read and largely no one will. 
I think you could do very well with a TikTok, though, Tim. I mean, don't sell yourself short there. Um, <laughs> Thank you, sir. Sh- Thank Sean, you. I just we'll want try. to follow up on that. Is well, he on? Just, well, hold on. Okay. Hold on, Neil. We, you follow up as we talk about Facebook, because we're not done with social media, because there's been another social media policy change. Facebook's responding to its oversight board's ruling on the suspension of former President Donald Trump over the January 6th Capitol Hill insurrection. Facebook reinforcing its suspension of Trump for two years, effective from January 7th. His account's only going to be reinstated if conditions permit. The platform outlining heightened penalties for public figures during times of civil unrest and said it will stop its hands-off treatment of content posted by elected officials. So, Neil, I I don't know. Um, Mix in your take there. Trump was very serious about putting U.S. TikTok in U.S. corporate hands. I don't know how he felt about the butt covering on TikTok. (laughs) Um, But Facebook spiked on this news. It has come down a bit, but um, does it matter? Yeah, I, I can connect these two stories. The platforms need to have clear rules. You need to understand the rules. And if you don't like the rules, you need to be able to push back on what they are. So TikTok is saying to all of its users, we're collecting this data. Your choices are okay or privacy policy. That's not a choice. That does not give the users power in that scenario. You can extend that all the way up to Trump, who got banned indefinitely. Facebook sent it to its own oversight board, and its own oversight board said, no, you need to have some rules and a schedule of penalties for this to make any sense. Yeah. If you want to operate with legitimacy, you need to have a system that people can understand. D, Facebook's credit extended that system. D, it's not lost on me that Trump banned TikTok, and some people argue that he didn't do it with clear enough rules involved, and then Facebook banned Trump, and the oversight board ruled that they didn't do it with, with clear enough rules involved. I mean, there's <laughs> a lot of banning and not a lot of clear rules out there. Yeah, we've come full circle, haven't we? But I mean, Facebook essentially just kicked the can down the road once again for two years. What's going to happen in two years? This is going to be just as controversial. It's before another election. And we're certainly going to hear from Trump, who knows where or on what platform, about this decision. But I do applaud Facebook for at least laying out its enforcement policy and giving us some clarity. I mean, this should have been done years and years ago. So I don't know if they deserve a pat on the back, but there is more to go on, at least now, to Neelay's point. Well, we know how long the road is that they're kicking the can down. Two years. Bank of America Securities, meanwhile, throwing in the towel on two meme stocks. The firm's terminating coverage of GameStop, effective immediately, and moving uh, to no rating on Bed Bath & Beyond. The analysts were writing that meme mania and non-fundamental factors have taken over. While it's game over for GameStop, Bank of America does see a long-term turnaround story for Bed Bath & Beyond. Uh, Both stocks making outsized gains in the past month, along with the rest of the meme names. Tim, um, I don't know. Analysts tend to chase stocks a a little bit too often. And it it seems like these meme stocks are just running too fast. And plus, it's not based on fundamental. How would you even cover these things? Do you trade them? Well, no, I don't. Um, And in fact, I think the question that sometimes I ask myself is real or Reddit when I'm looking at an outsized move in a stock that that there may be a fundamental attachment to. 
Um, look, we can pick on analysts all we want. If anything, analysts should be standing in here and making a clear stand on fundamentals. And, and, and so um, when, you, when you look at what's going on with AMC and when you look at GameStop, yes, there's a fundamental story. There are management changes, but there's still no getting away from balance sheet dynamics or you know, essentially secularly broken industries or parts of their business. And, and so while... Uh, Look, an analyst can talk about where a balance sheet has been repaired. AMC has done a lot to at least do take care of short-term liquidity dynamics. I don't think they've done anything in the longer term. Um, throwing in the towel right now and just saying we 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 can't make a call, um, I think is 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 a problem because uh, I think in fact they're the ones that are supposed to be making the fundamental assessment. Analysts also do take into account liquidity dynamics and technical factors when adding in at least their entire picture, and I think that's what you have to do here. Oh, well, D, we've been having this conversation on tech check. Some people think that traditional valuations are dead. So maybe, I mean, what, what are analysts supposed to do? Maybe, I don't know, finger in the, what, what, what do they do? Maybe they need to, maybe they need to meet a new cohort of investors where that new cohort is comfortable thinking about value in more creative ways. I'm not sure how you do that. But John, we introduced <laughs> memes on tech check. Why can't they introduce memes in their analyst notes? I'm, I'm half kidding here. I don't know how they do that. But I think to Tim's point, they do serve an important purpose. And throwing in the towel, you know, isn't necessarily good enough. And who knows, over the next few months and years, we could see the rise of more YouTube investors and analysts, a few of which I think are very good that I follow myself. All right. Yes. Well, I don't know about memes and analyst reports. That's, can PDFs have memes in them? We'll see. Finally, not GIFs, but maybe memes. <laughs> Finally, Bitcoin just got dumped. <laughs> Over Twitter, uh, the crypto is down 4% following a tweet from none other than Tesla CEO slash techno king Elon Musk. Bitcoin trading below 37,000 earlier today. Now it's a little bit above. Musk tweeting a breakup meme along with hashtag Bitcoin and a broken heart emoji. Um, Neelay, this guy, you know, he hooks up with cryptos <laughs> like nobody's business. I mean, he was making out with Bitcoin <laughs> just a few weeks ago with Tesla, and now he's... He's hanging with the doge. I don't know. But, but he changes his mind a lot, too. I, I wouldn't be surprised if in a week or so he's back, you know, making up with Bitcoin. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you could uh, change the value of any security by as much as Elon can with a tweet, why wouldn't you? I think I would ask a broader question. What is the difference for the average investor between a meme stock and some of these crypto swings? You buy them both in an app. It's super seamless and you can make some money and you can leave you don't, you're not in it for the long term. I think for the average investor, this stuff all looks the same. Huh. Uh, Tim, uh, back to you on that connection. Isn't it amazing that he can move stuff as much as he can? Well, look, um, I, I've referred to, and I'm sure I'll get added here, uh, as Tess Lemmings. And, and look, what, when Elon's, you know, the power of his social media presence is, is about as uh, significant as anyone out there. Um, to the extent that at times Tesla has been a high growth company with fantastic technology, with a, largely a great product, um, but where the stock made no sense, uh, the balance sheet was under a lot of pressure, and then ultimately, you know, you fake it till you make it. Um, so I, I think there's also many other little threads of parallel here. I think, you know, Tesla's balance sheet is incredible at this point, and, and we all know where the market cap is. But I think Elon Musk's role out there in terms of disclosures and in terms of, you know, where he can and cannot uh, influence asset prices is really up to uh, that retail investor or that institutional investor to decide. I think a lot of institutions have issues with this. I think a lot of retail folks are not as concerned. Yeah. yeah. Well, not now. 
Not now, because the market's still hot in a lot of this <laughs> stuff. Tim Seymour, thank you. Deirdre Bosa, Neil Patel, thank you. And speaking of, AMC CEO Adam Aaron uh, communicating directly with investors as they send shares to the moon. Some of the company's moves this year could slow enthusiasm for the stock. That is next. The Exchange will be right back. Welcome back. Well, what a ride it has been for shares of AMC this week, up about 88%. It completed the sale of 11.5 million new shares in mere hours yesterday. But that's not even the wildest number when it comes to AMC share offerings. Seema Modi has that story. Seema? John, AMC has been capitalizing on the retail investor enthusiasm by completing a number of stock sales this week, as you just mentioned, uh, selling $230 million worth of stock to Mudrick Capital, then selling another 11 million shares of common stock to the market, amounting to $580 million. Before this week, AMC raised $1.6 billion from January to May, money it can use to pay down its debt, which sits at around $5 billion. But these stock sales, they come at a cost, further diluting existing shareholders. In fact, 80 percent of its total stock has been issued over the last 12 months. And CEO Adam Aaron says more sales could be in the cards. The company is now asking shareholders to approve a proposal that would allow it to issue more shares, but vowing not to use them this year. If the shareholders approve this new 25 million share tranche, Theoretically, we could use them quickly in 2022, or uh, we could use them spread out over a long period of time. We would only use them if there are really good opportunities for AMC. That was Aaron in conversation with YouTube personality Trey Collins, who is followed by thousands of retail meme traders. Unlike GameStop, Aaron has really tried to embrace the younger retail audience who has helped the theater chain stay afloat. And of course, John, the question is just for how long? I mean, the way this used to work, I mean, the way this works, is that when you're, when you're buying stock, you're paying for future earnings per share, right? And when the denominator gets bigger, the shares, the number of shares, the answer gets smaller, right? That's generally yeah. how this works. So that's the dilution piece that, I don't know, a lot of the people who are crazy about AMC on Twitter, they, they don't seem to be focused on. Yeah, and that's why, to your prior conversation you were just having, uh, you know, the 2,300% rise in shares of AMC. No analyst that covers fundamentals can really justify the stock appreciation we've seen in AMC. Uh, Given the metrics that you just pointed out, even short interest has been slowly rising today. It's at around 21 percent. Two days ago, it was at 19 percent. Time is of the essence, right, for the CEO to to claim this uh, meme status and take advantage advantage of it, which he clearly has as one would do, given right. the distress AMC is under to, to raise money. Who knows what next week will bring, Seema. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and Bank of America is trying to get ahead of the next meme mania for their list of the next Reddit socks to watch. Head to CNBC.com slash pro. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. How do you land your dream job? It starts by acing the interview. Learn exactly what hiring managers are looking for with CNBC Make It's new career-boosting online course. Get the limited-time offer. Register now at cnbcmakeit.com slash courses.